This morning, we are blessed to have Dr. Jim Baird from Oklahoma Christian University with us as our speaker. He has been invited to be our insight speaker this year. He is uh, uh, also the, the preaching minister for the Wilshire Church of Christ. He has a bachelor's degree from Oklahoma Christian, a master's from Harding University, and a doctorate from Oxford University. He has been here several times over the last 10 years, and today he comes to talk to us about grace, and you will be uh, treated this morning. Dr. Baird. Thank you. Thanks so much, Doug. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you, uh, MacArthur Park. I, I really appreciate you guys inviting me back. Uh, I, I said this to the 8:30 Congress. You know, you get invited one place that could once you, that could be a fluke. But uh, if you get invited back, then okay, that's that's something. And so I appreciate it. Uh, Doug, you're very patient with me. I appreciate it. He he organized lots and lots of stuff. Sent me lots of emails, which I'm very slow to respond to. And I appreciate the work you've done. And I mentioned in the 8:30 service, Ben. It's really a pleasure to hear you leading singing. Thank you so much. I know Ben from a long time back, and I work with uh, Ben's brother and sister-in-law, who are glorious, wonderful, fantastic people. And if you haven't met them, everybody should have something to look forward to. So I hope you get to do that. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about grace. And in particular, we're going to talk about grace and the wrong people. I want to start by showing you a picture, a part of a picture. We're going to start with a small part of a picture. This picture hangs in the Academia in Venice. Uh, it's by Paolo Veronese. It was painted uh, 1573. And uh, the original title was The Last Supper. It's supposed to be The Last Supper. It's replacing a, a painting by Titian that was destroyed in a fire. And uh, Veronese's commissioned paint The Last Supper. And uh, this, is what he, this is part of what he produced. But he got in trouble with the Italian version of the Inquisition because of this painting. He actually, three months after this goes up, he gets called in front of the Italian, essentially what's the Italian Inquisition, and gets called on the carpet for it because this is the center panel of this massive painting. Let's show the whole painting. I don't know if you can even see all the details in this painting. You see the center bit that I showed you, and then there's all this other stuff going on uh, in this painting. And Jesus in the center is dressed in sort of the traditional robes where you show Jesus, you know, that sort of the uh, Renaissance view of what first century robes would look like. And the people with him are mostly like that. There's one guy in, convention, in cardinal robes. But other than that, it looks pretty conventional. But then on the outer panels, people are dressed in, you know, Renaissance clothing, just contemporary Renaissance clothing that would people would be wearing in Venice during the time this was painted, you know, and the, and the architecture and everything, and the food looks all pretty contemporary. And, and what the inquisitors got kind of mad about was just what a wild party it was. I mean, people are obviously drunk in there. One guy has a nosebleed, if you look really close. One guy over in the corner, I think it's over on the um, left side, one guy actually has a fork and is... Uh, is picking his teeth. Is this working? Is this on? 
Okay, well, it is yellow. Nope. There we go. All right, I apologize. I have all kinds of trouble with this thing. Um, one guy is picking his teeth over in the corner. The Inquisitors didn't like the fact that there was a German. There were actually several Germans in here. The guy over on the right with the big belly, he's, I think he's a drunken German. Anyway, they specifically called that out. They didn't like, they didn't like that you got such a sacred uh, subject as Jesus being portrayed with all these unsuitable people around him. Right? You get that? They were mad, and they and actually told Veronese, you got to change this. you got three months. you got to fix the painting. Now, the deal about this painting is it's massive. The reason it's famous, one of the main reasons it's famous, is because it is, like, big enough to be uh, the sail of a small ship. It is 42, more than 42 feet wide. It's more than 18 feet high. fills a whole wall. Uh, it's It's... It's the biggest canvas painting that comes out of the Renaissance, actually, um, out of the Italian Renaissance. It's just massive, massive, massive. And he didn't want to fix it. So he changed the name. It's, no, it's not hung now as the Last Supper. It is hung at Supper as Levi's house. There's this famous story in the Gospel of Luke, parallel story in Matthew. Matthew, or Levi, gets called. He's tax collector. He gets called to be a disciple of Jesus. He's so thrilled he throws a party. Who's going to come to a party at a tax collector's house? Unsuitable people, that's who, right? Unsuitable sinners and other tax collectors, people that the normal righteous Jews won't associate with, that's who shows up. And sure enough, Veronese said, problem solved. Yes, there are drunken Germans. Who cares? <laughs> of course, who else would be there at the dinner at Levi's house? And it got, he got away with it. They didn't, they didn't call him back on the carpet. He got away with it. I use that to illustrate what was an ongoing tension in Jesus' ministry. And I'm going to say it's an ongoing tension to this day in Jesus' ministry and in your ministry. Grace uh, keeps pushing us against the wrong people. It's still off? Okay, I promise you it's glowing green. So has it come unconnected? You can hear us? You can? You can hear me back there? Well, this mic's working. Okay, if I'm over here, can you still hear me? All right. Oh, my. All right. I don't know. Okay. I will try to do my best. At any rate, uh, one of the things that was so shocking about Jesus to his contemporaries, especially the religious authorities, his version of the Inquisition, was who he would associate with. He just kept eating with unsuitable characters, unsuitable people. Luke 15, verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Humans are just kind of tribal. And, and there's always, if you look at what humans are doing at any time in history, humans are doing tribal things. We like to draw lines and really think about who's on the inside of the line and who's on the outside. You think about our politics right now. Think about religion. Think about even in your family. People kind of just want to know who's on the inside and who's on the outside. We spend a lot of time with that. We just are 
kind of built to be tribal. I am not a sporty person. I don't follow sports. But tribalism reared its ugly head a while back. Uh, the Oklahoma City basketball team is called the Thunder. And we recruited uh, back in 2009 a guy named James Harden. And I don't follow basketball at all. I've watched maybe two Thunder games in my life. It still hurt my feelings when your neighbor city, Houston, stole James Harden from Oklahoma City. <laughs> that's how tribal I am. I just felt like my tribe had been wronged, you know, had been, had been robbed. Um, we're tribal. We are. And, and the way tribalism was expressing itself back in the Jewish day was that good people, good Jewish people, uh, drew lines and said, well, if you're good, you don't associate with the bad. They aren't welcome at your feast. In fact, if, if these people show up, you get up and leave because you don't want other people to see you eating and having association with sinners and tax collector. How does Jesus respond to that? Well, it's a very Jesus response. In Luke chapter 15, he tells three stories. And you gotta be careful when Jesus tells stories, folks, because Jesus' stories are not like normal stories. Jesus' stories are super subversive stories. You just think you're listening to a story. This happened, this happened, this happened. But when you get to the end of a Jesus story, he has, he has turned your brain around a bit. Every time. It's so interesting to watch him do this. So he does it. He tells these stories. This is a guy. He has a hundred sheep. He loses a sheep. He just leaves 99 sheep wandering around, and he goes and searches for that one sheep, right? We know this story. And the point of the story is the reaction. What does he do when he finds that one sheep? He says, oh, my friends, look, I found my sheep. I'm so excited. Was he excited about the 99 sheep? No. No. He's excited about the one sheep that was lost and that's now found. Lady, 10 coins. She loses a coin. She does nine. She doesn't throw a party for the nine. What does she do? Sweeps her house, lights the lamps, clearing away everything until she finds that one coin. And when she finds the coin, she is so more excited about the one coin than all those other nine that she had the whole time. That's such a great way to subvert what's going on with the Pharisees who are happy, kind of, that the bad guys are on the far side of the line because that makes them feel all the more good to be on this side of the line. And Jesus says, don't you see, verse 7, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Uh, I love that story. How often do the lost stay lost because nobody goes looking for them? Uh, I have a lot of books in my life I have books in my office. I have books in Yodi's office. I have books in my bedroom. I have books piled on the floor in my bedroom. 
I have books piled in chairs in my, I have books a lot of places. And I will admit to you that there are frequent times when I find multiples of the same book. And it's not really my fault, it's Amazon's fault. I have, it is easier, <laughs> I own a credit card and I have an Amazon account. It is easier to get on Amazon and order the book I want than to find the copy I already own. I mean, it just is. It's just, it's terrible, it's terrible. <laughs> ah, Jeff Bezos, he's the devil. Anyway, uh, I just don't care enough to go looking for that lost book. And Jesus tells these stories and the Pharisees are being invited to realize, I'm over here because I really want some of these lost people to be saved. And you apparently don't care that much that they're lost. You're not looking for them. You're kinda, you kind of get a little something-something from them staying lost. You know? It makes you feel a little closer to God somehow for them to stay on the far side of the bad line, right? And you feel a little better about yourself. You like that line. And you like being able to enforce that line. And so you don't want to go looking for the lost. But God wants to go looking for the lost. And he rejoices when the lost are found. And Jesus tells the best story. It's either the first or the second most popular parable Jesus ever told. The parable, we traditionally call it the parable of the prodigal son, the wasteful son, the lost son. And it's a, it's, it's a pretty rough story. Uh, this son... Second son, he's entitled to one-third of his father's property when his father dies. And the insult of the story is, I can't wait for you to die, old man. Give me my stuff now. This guy is not brilliant, okay? He is not a brain trust. He takes that money, and he does exact. You knew what was going to happen as soon as those words came out of his mouth, right? I mean, this, this is, the plot is so obvious to this part of the story, right? He, if he's foolish enough to make those, that statement to his father, then he's foolish enough to do what comes next. He immediately blows one-third of the family fortune. And, and he ends up in terrible poverty. He's just, he's starving to death in a foreign country, away from the temple, away from God's people, away from God, starving. Feeding pigs, of all things, for a good Jewish boy didn't get any lower than that. And he's not even allowed to eat the food that the pigs eat. It's just awful. Uh, Jesus tells that story, and he comes back. And he doesn't come back because he's, you know, really repentant. He comes back because he's starving today. He doesn't have great motives. And he has this speech. And guess what happens? The father runs out to meet him and says, welcome home, I'm so glad, and kills the fatted calf. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, let's have a party, let's celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and was alive again. It's a shocking demonstration of what grace is like. I am so happy that you're still alive, let's have a party. Let's have a party. For my son was dead and is alive. Jesus is doing some more subversion in this story. You can hear it. 
One of the reasons we kind of draw lines between us and the sinners, I'm afraid, is we're envious of the sinners sometimes. We think they must be having the best time over there. Just living it up, those sinners. Just having the best. They're, they're just partying, partying. I'm over here going to church. All I get is God. And Jesus tells the story to help us understand. How happy was that kid's life? Sin isn't living. Sin is dying. This son of mine was dead. And he's alive now. Is he a good boy? No. Did he just have a fantastic moral transformation and he's become really super righteous now? Not particularly. Do you know where he is? He's back in my house where I wanted him to be. He's back with the Father. He's alive again. Story doesn't end there. There's an older brother. He's out in the fields. He hears this commotion. He asks what's going on. It's a party. Your brother came home. That makes the older brother angry. The older brother doesn't like that. Becomes angry. He refuses to go in. The father comes out and asks him to come in. He says, no, I've worked way harder for you. I've obeyed every command you've given. You never even gave me a lousy stinking goat. Now our stall-fed calf that we've been storing up for, you've slaughtered that and for this worthless, no-good son of yours. You don't love me. And I've worked hard. Is that fair? It's essentially the challenge of the older brother. Is that fair? Father's words are you know, essentially fairness doesn't have anything to do with it. Your son, your brother was dead. <laughs> He's alive again. <laughs> we got to celebrate. He's back in my house. He's back with me. And the irony is, where does the older brother end up? At the end of the story, where does the older brother end up? This was the sting in this story. Where does the older brother end up? Who's in the house and who's out of the house at the end of the story? The older brother is out of the house. The older brother is away from the father at the end of the story. It's so sad, because honestly, okay, just super honest here. Parents, if you just had these two kids to pick from, which one would you want more? That, ah, don't give me the Bible school answer. Which one do you really like? would you rather have? The older brother's really a pretty good guy. <laughs> and the horrible thing about this is he's not being attacked at his weakest spot. He's actually being attacked at his strong spot. You know, he is righteous and he has obeyed his father and he has honored his parents and he has done the right thing all along. And it isn't, God's grace or the father's grace doesn't seem fair. All of that is correct. That is all true. But what that ends up doing is, his outrage about that 
manifests itself by separating him from the Father. And here's the message. Refusing God's love to those who do less doesn't bring more of God's love to me. It doesn't. God wants to save sinners. Almost any line you can think of, God's already on the far side of that line. He's trying to get those sinners. Some of them are way more ready to be saved than you think they are, and he's over there working. And he's saying to you, come over here and help me. Maybe not right now. You may not be strong enough yet. It may mess you up to come over, but get stronger. Get more of me in you. And when you're strong enough, come over here and help me save some of these sinners. They're dead, and I want them to be alive. They're away from me, and I want them to be with me. Grace, it's not about how much you do. It's about how close you are to God. Thank you.